0: following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We're going to get into Jude next week. This is our second week kind of taking a break from that to talk about something else. And last week we talked about the reality of what it means to be the apple of God's eye. So David prays in the Psalms, says, God, make me the apple of your eye. And then we saw these other passages in the Old Testament where we hear over and over that Israel is in the apple of God's eye. And the image in the Hebrew language is this little person in the eye of God. So what David was asking was that God be so close that if David could look into the eyes of God, he could see his own little reflection. He'd be the little man in the eyes of God. First of all, This is fantastic news for us as followers of Jesus. If we wonder where God is, there may be times where we struggle to feel his presence or feel a loneliness, and we wonder, where are you, we go back to this biblical image, and we recognize God is this close. If we could kind of uh, give him human form. If Jesus were here in this moment, the idea would be, we're that close, we could see ourselves reflected in his eyes. And then we talked last week that this has implications for us as well, that we are seeking to represent God to the world as people of God. And we know God cares because God is this close to us, the apple of the eye close. And I suspect a lot of people will understand how much God cares when the people of God are apple of the eye close to them. So my final point last week was that followers of Jesus, so that's us as the church collectively, We ought to be so close to everybody that there's no one in the world who is not in the apple of the eye of God's people. It doesn't mean we're that close to everybody, but we're that close to somebody, and then collectively as a church, we've got the world covered. So, this isn't a perfect analogy. The biblical language is that the people in the eye of God are God's people. They are the followers of Christ. But I think it seems fair to say that the image bearers of God, we want to go to people who are far from him so that they're in the eyes of the image bearers who are near to him and are filled with his spirit and his truth. It's one way of thinking about evangelism. We're we're the salt in society. We're the light in the world. Where people are, we go, and we go close. And I think one of the most important ways we can do this is by being close to those who are experiencing the broken groaning of a creation that's racked by sin. So there's biblical language for this, right? We weep with those who weep, says Romans 12:15. God's near to the brokenhearted, Psalm 34:18. He binds up people's wounds, this is Psalm 147. Isaiah says that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So we help people carry their burdens. We help people bear their griefs. And Colossians 1 would tell us that when we do that, we're, we're bringing with us this Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not that we are capable of bringing this kind of comfort to people, but we are carrying something within us. We're carrying the presence and the message of God. And so we go to the brokenhearted, we bind up wounds, we weep with the weeping, we find people who are grieving and mourning, and we we walk with them and carry their burdens. So the last couple months, I'd say between the ongoing pandemic and then more recently the racial tension that we're experiencing here in the States, it's just clear that there's a lot of weeping and brokenhearted and wounded people right now. We often talk about what we read about in the book of Esther, this idea of someone being raised up for such a time of this. As you used that phrase before, for such a time of this. All right, so what I'm wondering is, what do we think of as a church? We're in this time. What does it look like for us to be raised up for such a time as this? So I want to talk about some principles embedded in Scripture, And my application this morning is particularly going to be applying it to the racial strife that we're feeling here in the United States. Uh, I've been reading a lot of comments recently online about how the Bible only talks about one race, that's the human race. And if we get sucked into talking about racism, then it's probably just a sign that we're buying into worldly categories of thinking. Now, that's true in a sense, because the world in which the Bible was written, They thought of people in terms of tribes and nations and tongues. If you read the book of Revelation, at the end of the world, the end of history, every tribe and nation and tongue will be in front of the throne of God. People at the time the Bible was written didn't seem to segregate the world through the lens of skin tone like we often do today. So Paul, for example, when he's on Mars Hill talking to the philosophers of Greek and Rome, of Greece and Rome, he says... God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Acts does not record that any of the philosophers batted an eye like they were in this was just kind of the assumption. We we all get this. And this word for nation, I think it's on the screen, it's where we get our word for ethnicity. It was ethnos, which really is about cultures and customs. It's not about skin. This just wasn't something at the time. There's lots of other things that divided people at the time. We'll get to that in a second. This does not appear to be one of them. So, a classic Bible verse just about the kinds of divisions that were taking place in the world at that time and were seeping into the church. It's Galatians 3.28 when we read, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, or male or female. At that time, Jewish men were known to pray a prayer where they thanked God that they were not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And so, when we read this in Galatians, this is a shot across the bow. Because those categories were categories people used to to label others. It was divisive. It was demeaning. And Paul says, uh, no, no, this isn't going to work. God's creating a new humanity in which these things that before divided you, I mean, they're distinctions, He's not erasing the distinctions, he's erasing the division that followed those distinctions. So Paul says, yeah, you you can't, it's a new humanity in Christ. All these walls and barriers that you've been erecting, culturally speaking, because they weren't biblical barriers, you got to get rid of those. In Corinth, we read an interesting thing where some of the women were coming to church with veils on and some weren't. That was once again a social status barrier. If the previous ones had to do with um, religious division, that's Jew and Gentile, class division, and gender division, in Corinth we see this social status. So women who wore veils were automatically highly respected and women who didn't weren't. And to Corinth, Paul goes, yeah, that's no good either. This is still divisive. It was a cultural distinction that was making people go at each other instead of drawing people together. So Paul says, listen, if you're a woman, you're going to wear a veil because we're going to honor all of you. We're going to insist that everybody view you this way. We read in the book of James, James spends a while in one of his chapters talking about there was a division of the rich and poor. Like you're treating rich people better. Other places in Scripture say, Uh, The rich are coming to the Lord's feast where the rich were supposed to be bringing enough food for everybody so that those without much food had a feast occasionally. Now, they're showing up first and eating all the goodies and leaving what's left for the poor, which was the traditional role that the poor had at that time. And that's addressed in Scripture. Like, these things, they're dividing you. Got to get rid of these things. You don't divide in the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean we erase distinctions, because distinctions are real. God made a world with distinct things, but you don't use distinctions to divide each other. God didn't draw the lines of segregation. People did, and God has something to say about it, because he's going to break down these culturally constructed barriers. So, I think God has something to say about racism, too. The Bible used its current events to show how the process works so we can apply it to our current events and i would say this has been clear in america for a long time but the last couple weeks have provided an opportunity for us to look at it very closely and to see that racism needs to be broken at the foot of the cross like all of these other things needed to be at the foot of the cross when the bible was being written so i'm going to talk about a concept that is broadly applicable that is What's a way to be faithfully present in the world such that we are going to people, they become the little people in our eye because we're that close, and now we're present bringing the presence and the message of Jesus to people. I'm going to make three points. That is, we're going to sit with people, we're going to share the gospel, and we're going to invest in their lives. My application is going to have to do with this cultural moment, what that looks like when it comes to the issue of racial division. Keep in mind, this is a broader principle that can be applied to a whole lot of things. I don't have time to apply it to everything this morning, so I'm just going to apply it to one thing. So first point, sit with people. A guy named Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote a book after his son died. His book was called Lament for a Son. And this this passage from his book has lingered with me. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come, sit beside me on my mourning bench. Let's not be hesitant to mourn what needs to be mourned. And I think that means we will mourn with and for everybody at some point because we all get nailed by sin. Sometimes we get nailed with the consequence of our own sin. Sometimes we get nailed with the consequence of other people's sin. Either way, we're getting hit by the consequence and the reality of sin. And that's worth mourning. And rather than looking at what camp it places us in, let's just look at the person in mourning and ask ourselves how we can be faithfully present in the midst of their mourning. It's one thing that Job's friends did right. I mean, if you are familiar with the book of Job, Job's friends, they go off the rails eventually. But for a couple days, they do at least one thing right. They just sit with Job. I mean, I think it's three days. They just sit with him. Job's in mourning. I mean, the dude, if you read the story, it's it's not a good scene. And they don't try to fix him. They sit with him. They just enter into his world and enter into his pain. And when we talk about Job's friend, we never give him any crap for that. Because that's the thing they did right. They just sat with Job, took the time to try to understand where Job was. And like I said, part of what Job teaches is that even after you do that, (laughs) it might not go well if you're not careful about what kind of advice you give or how you remain present. But it was a great start. It's okay to sit in a mourning moment and do a very particular kind of weeping for a particular person or a particular situation. That's why Jesus could weep over Jerusalem. This is Luke 19. The whole world deserved weeping. But in that moment, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It's why Jonah went to Nineveh. I mean, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. The whole world needed a prophet. But Jonah needed to go to Nineveh in that moment. It's why Jesus can weep for Lazarus when a lot of people died that same day, but Jesus didn't weep for them in that moment. He wept for Lazarus. It's why Jesus focuses on the one lost sheep, even though the other 99 still matter. And it's why we, as followers of Christ, with this kind of example before us, we can sit on the mourner's bench with someone who is black and mourning in this cultural moment, and we can say, I'm sorry. Your life matters. And there's no need to add qualifications right now. We could just, in this moment, sit and mourn. I've spoken about the importance of all lives in this pulpit for years. We come back to this over and over. Everybody bears the image of God. And because everybody bears the image of God, it matters how we treat everybody. That we as followers of Christ, the Bible describes us as living stones that make up the temple. We're dwelled by the Holy Spirit, and that matters. So, we've said this for years over and over again. The biblical message is that everyone matters. Of course, this is part of the truth of Scripture. But surely, if Jesus can focus on the one that's in desperate need of attention and intervention for a time, and we don't assume that the other 99 didn't matter to him, Maybe we can focus on the few for a time without assuming it means we don't care about the many. There's a time to focus our tears, not because no one else deserves it or because no one else matters, but because right now the little man in my eye, the person in front of me who is creating that, it's personal. And so I'll enter into their world and I'll focus and I'll mourn. And I think it's in this time of mourning that people learn that we care and they learn that the God who indwells us cares. And this is hard. Um, if you've been with people in mourning or someone has been with you when you've been in mourning, you know half the time we don't know what to say. We're not sure if we should give people space or if we should move closer. We might not fully understand why they're mourning. Um, we might get their mourning was brought in themselves or it happened. There's all kinds of things in this. But in that moment, what the mourner needs is a fellow human being who is also a follower of Jesus to get close enough that they could see themselves in our eyes. And then we sit with them and we just be present because we care and we're ambassadors of Jesus. And that's how people learn that, we, that Jesus cares. And what will happen is, if we're in Christ, to use biblical language, that means if we're in his will, if we're representing his heart and his mind, and we simply follow the sound to the weeping, we'll look up. And, and sometimes we'll be sitting with friends and with family and with church members. And sometimes, and now I'll go back to last week's message, we'll look up and we're sitting with Samaritans and centurions and tax collectors and prostitutes. Because creating little people in our eyes is going to take us to places that'll make us look like friends of sinners, which is what they call Jesus. And of course, it's what we are, because that's what Jesus was. Those being transformed into his image will increasingly become a friend of sinners. And as with Jesus, his critics used it as a derogatory term. Look at him. He spends time with sinners. And over the centuries, the church has taken that term that was meant to be derogatory and said, oh, no, that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus went to anyone And we represent the good news of the gospel by going to anyone. So I just say, if you have followed the sound of the weeping, and, and you're going there as an ambassador of Christ and as a fellow human being, and you look up and you're in strange territory, I wouldn't move. It's where Jesus was. It's a good look for followers of Jesus when we follow Jesus where he went. So I think that's the first important thing but let's go sit at the mourner's bench with those who are broken and mourning and ravaged by sin. Let's be present, uh, and let's not be afraid about where it takes us. And then number two, we've got to preach the good news of the gospel. So being faithfully present is not less than simply being with people, but it's certainly more than that. Because if I have a cure for someone who's sick, and all I do is sit with them, that's no good. So I was envisioning this conversation with my doctor this last week, and it went something like this. I don't feel so good, doc. And my doctor says, I could see that. I'm really sorry for you. You have epifungal gingivitonicitis. And I said, that's not good. I didn't even know I had epifungal gingivitonisitis. And the doctor says, no, you didn't. And then we just sit there. Doctor says, I feel really bad for you. Okay. I mean, that's nice, but it's not going to fix the problem, right? Uh, And epifungal gingivitonositis is pretty serious. So Jesus thank you, Gary. Jesus came for a sick people in a sin-sick world. He's the great physician. So two things happen. He gives the right diagnosis, and the right diagnosis is that sin is killing us. From the inside out, sin is killing us. And the sin that wells up in us personally spills out of the culture around us. And we've talked for years here, the ripple effect of sin is terrible. But then because he's the great physician, he has the right cure. And that's the blood of Jesus. So our faithful witness includes faithfully witnessing to the saving grace of the gospel. Now, if all we do is sit with someone That's comforting. I think that's important in and of itself. But it's not what theologians call salvific. Just a fun word to say. Try it sometime. It's just salvific. All that means is it brings salvation. So sitting with someone and simply mourning, it's a temporary good. It's not a bad thing at all. But there's more that we have to offer as as followers of Jesus. So doctors, for example, will give morphine to someone who's in tremendous pain uh, and they may be dying. That morphine won't save them, but it's better than letting them die in pain. If that's all a doctor can do, they'll at least do that. And I think we would look at that and go, okay, that's a good thing. But what if that doctor could heal them? And they were offering pain relief when they could have healed them? Right? So th- that's an entirely different scenario. Now that's not a good doctor, <laughs> that's a doctor who is failing to bring the ultimate solution to what ails the person in front of them. So we can do practical things as followers of Jesus to protect earthly life, to bring earthly hope. Those aren't bad things. Christianity throughout history has gone into the cultures around them and given a cup of water in the name of Jesus and fed the hungry and clothed the naked and started hospitals. The, the church does this kind of thing when it's salt, light, in a culture but we have life in Christ to offer. We have hope that the power of sin and death will not have the last word. So giving a cup of water to someone with a parched throat is good news, but giving living water, that's what the Bible calls euangelion. That's evangelism. It's the good news, and we give that for the parched souls of the people with the parched throats. This isn't an either-or decision that Christians have to make. We are called to both these things as part part of being faithfully present in culture. And so we can embrace the opportunity to offer temporary goods and to advocate for earthly justice. But we just have to remember the Great Commission. We go into all the world, we preach the gospel, it's the good news that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that sin and death do not have the final word, and that broken people in a groaning world could find salvation and hope in Jesus. So who needs to hear this kind of message delivered by Christians who are so close to them that they see themselves, apple of the eye, close, right? Who needs to hear this message? Well, the George Floyds of the world, the policemen who killed him, Ahmad Arbery, the guys who shot him, heartbroken Black Lives Matter protesters, Marxist revolutionaries who were fueling the protests, slandered law enforcement officials, Antifa radicals, Proud Boys and Boogaloo extremists, the rioters who burned businesses to the ground, the shop owner whose business was burned to the ground, politicians who don't want to waste a good crisis, it turns out God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever believes in him can be saved even in the midst of of the most scandalous sinfulness. I'm not suggesting everyone in that list I just read represents scandalous sinfulness. I'm just saying, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever, and who's going to take them that good news? We are. How close do we have to be? Apple the eye close. Right? There's no place in the world or culture that we don't go because we have the message of a God who makes all things new. And if we don't go, who will? People outside the church, they can take the news of temporary relief. They can offer morphine to a dying person. There's We can structure stuff culturally. And like I said, I'm not opposed to those things. I mean, it's good to take away pain. But there's one group of people that needs to be present with everybody I just read and in every situation you can envision. There is one group of people that has salvific news, and that's us. It's hard for people to hear if we're shouting from a distance. It's much easier for people to hear when we're this close. So here, this is cool. This, this means sinners can experience redemption. It means terrible sinners can experience redemption. That's the scandalous nature of the gospel. So I don't know if you're familiar with Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband was killed by a group of people that he had gone to evangelize. And we rightly love Elizabeth Elliot because she forgave the murderers of her husband. In fact, she went back to that village and continued his work. And if I remember the story correctly, basically the whole village was saved. Am I I remembering that right? Yeah, okay. We love the Amish communities who forgive the shooters of their children If you're like me, you'll tear up when you see these courtroom scenes where someone has done a monstrous thing and killed someone or something terrible, and the family of the victim, they show up and they say, we love Jesus, and we forgive you, and they embrace. And sometimes those stories end up with the perpetrator becoming saved and sometimes even over time becoming embedded in the family. We love watching people embrace the implications of a scandalous grace-filled cross because we know that's how the gospel's supposed to play out, right? We know that's how the gospel plays out. We've experienced in our own lives, and, and I don't want to make us just look at scandalous sin and forget that all sin is scandalous. We've all been offered that grace and been saved. All I mean by scandalous sin is that sometimes there's things that really catch headlines that really stand out to us. But we love watching the implications of a grace-filled cross. So my question is, can we do it? Can we do it? I like reading about is elizabeth elliot doing it. And it's easy for me to think about what it must have been like to go to a people that i uh, I don't want to put words in her mouth but that had to be hard. <laughs> Come on that had to be hard. Can we do it? Can we practice it? Can we look at everyone in our community or everyone on our TV screen and genuinely pray for salvation and forgiveness and for restoration that Jesus offers them and then be ready to be the one who gets this close so they can hear the good news of the gospel. I don't know any other way. And that brings me to my third and final point. This has to do with investing in these neighbors. We talked last week about who is my neighbor, everybody, all right? What does it look like to be present with people, to sit with them as I need to sit with them? And then the second part is bring the gospel. That's not an either-or project. That's a both-and project. I can do both of those as a follower of Jesus because Jesus did. All right, so I'm going to do both of them. But the third thing in is now i got to put my money where my mouth is, so to speak. Now I'm with people who have been broken and ravaged by sin just like we have been. We have people who sit with us and talk to us about Jesus and the good news of the gospel. But then we also have people who walk with us in a very practical sense. Oh, Okay, now you're, you're a broken person in a broken world and God is doing a spiritual healing in you. What can I do? to be with you and and to help you in this moment. So we invest in our neighbors. So what God said to his people when they were in Babylon in exile, and this is from Jeremiah 29, build houses, make homes for your families because you're not coming back to Judah anytime soon. Okay, Israel is a conquered people taken into Babylon, which throughout the Bible represents Anything bad you could think about with empires. And they're taken there. And actually what was happening here was that false prophets were telling them, this will be over soon. Don't worry about it. And Jeremiah goes, nah, it's not going to be over soon. You're here for a while. So here's what you should do. Build houses. Make homes for your families. You're not coming back to Judah anytime soon. Plant gardens. Eat the food you grow. Marry and have children. Children. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters a marriage so they can have children. During these years of captivity, let your families grow and not die out. Pursue the peace and the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to me, the eternal, for Babylon, because if it has peace, you will live in peace. So, I think it's fair to think of ourselves as exiles living in Babylon. That's true for any Christian in the world and any country they live in. Um... We're exiles living in Babylon. You could use other biblical analogies, Egypt, Rome. Uh, I think Francis Schaefer was famous for comparing where we live to Rome at one point. But the idea is the same. Okay, so what do we do? Well, I think there's something to be said for looking around and going, well, we're not leaving anytime soon. <laughs> All right, then what's the best plan? We embed ourselves in our communities. We can become part of what's happening Uh, In the lives of those around us, Uh, we pray for the peace of Traverse City, of Michigan, of the United States, because if they are at peace, we will live in peace. And the way this has played out in the church throughout history is in two ways. First, the early church. uh, You see modeled in the book of Acts that within the church community, they looked out for each other. So there's just a couple of verses given to it, but the the church, I believe in Jerusalem. Um, they said nobody was in need because the people in the church with a lot looked out for the people in the church who didn't have much, and nobody was in need. It's remarkable. The government didn't make them do it. Nobody was coercing them to do it. They looked around and they said, to whom much is given, much is required. I have been given much. I have people around me in whom I can invest in in ways that are very important to them. And so they simply did it. And do you see that play out through the history of the world? And this is Christians starting hospitals, offering um, free food. It's one of the cool things we see exemplified currently when we go visit Jesus people in Chicago, a community of Christians who are denying themselves a lot of physical things so they can simply meet the practical needs of the city where they live. But the second thing was this, and that was a good segue actually unintentionally. The church also looked out for the community around them. In the first couple centuries, the Romans in general were furious at the church because the church treated Roman citizens so much better than Rome did. <laughs> like, they, they could tell it. They were losing ground. People were starting to like this crazy group of Jesus followers. Why? Because they took care of them. They just, they did what Rome wouldn't do because it turns out people in the church have a heart for people in ways that empires don't. And, and so they, within the church, were faithfully present in a very practical way, and in their community, were faithfully present in a very practical way. The church throughout history is taken care of more than their own, much to the dismay, dismay of the governments that get shown up. You know, honestly, if we want the, part of our being this salt and light, uh, I hope I made it clear the gospel message is the most important message that we send but i think doors open relationships build when we recognize i'm also just for you i i care about your needs i i am this close to you it turns out hi one of god's people i see your needs on all of their levels and as a representative of jesus i'm here to help so we're not just the mouth and eyes of jesus Uh, By speaking the gospel and by the eyes, I'm talking about seeing and being this close. We're not just the mouth and eyes of Jesus. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. feet go places and hands do things for the sake of all the image bearers. And we do it in the name of and for the glory of Jesus. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.